0: hey team can i bug you with a question
1: spider out of here
0: i don't i'm not sure what that was don do you have don you feeling any any punniness in here
1: no he's busy bugging out
0: <laughs> oh you just stole my bug
2: oh crap i think i was on mute i was i said say you asked for bug puns you asked you asked for bug puns and i was like man this is pretty hard right now to think of them <laughs> It was just silence. I was like, oh no, we lost Don. I was really proud of that bug pun, though. I
1: love you guys. You guys are great.
0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Pokey Science. We have cameraman Chris, Professor Madison.
1: It's not very scientific right now.
0: And fisherman Don, (laughs) as always.
2: How's it going?
0: We have a wonderful interview today about a study we actually talked about a couple weeks ago on the news. A paper published about jumping larvae. And so we have one of the authors as a guest today to tell us about that research and then tell us about some of the wonderful larva Pokemon that populate these games.
1: I mean, the idea of jumping larva kind of scares me.
0: Have you seen the photos? It's wild.
1: Do you want ants? This is how you get ants. Ants don't jump.
0: (laughs) This was, it was only observed in some, it was some beetle. I forget the kind of beetle, but that's why we have our guest here to tell us about it. Do you think he will? If he doesn't, I will ask him. Cue the music all right, Madison, you want to kick us off with some science news?
1: I have big news, so today, as we are recording this, uh, there's a huge piece of scientific news that it's a win for everyone, honestly, we've had our third patient cured of HIV
0: yes. That's big news.
1: Um, Yeah. So the first two, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, uh, the Berlin patient was famous in the mid-2000s. So the first two patients um, had cancer in addition to HIV, and they were cured by a bone marrow transplant. Because what happened is uh, roughly about, we know of about 20,000 people in the population have a mutation. Uh, that essentially prevents HIV infections. Uh, it's a genetic mutation. And so what happened is that these bone marrow transplants in the original two patients who had cancer, when they're grafted, their bodies essentially rejected the HIV as they took in the new marrow. So this this new uh, new study is very different. It's not that this is the third patient and it's a new method and what happened was this came from umbilical cord blood. Is it umbilical like stem cells? Um so it's different, right? Stem okay. cells. Okay. Uh stem cells were in the bone marrow which is a lot harder to get. Uh the umbilical cord blood is apparently easier and it's easier to transplant too. Oh okay, interesting. Because you're not doing a bone marrow transplant which yeah, you're not aware of, you know, what how they do bone marrow to, you know, treat is it leukemia, right?
0: Yeah, so is it is it it's like, like a tra- incredibly
1: painful, right?
0: Yeah, is this like so is are they like is it like a blood transfusion with yeah. that Yeah, so
1: it was the uh this is, so what makes it special is that most of the research into HIV has been done on men and caucasian men which is really a big deal um, as anyone in the health sciences knows that there's huge discrepancies in research on other racial groups who are not Caucasian. And what ends up happening is that we find not all treatments work for all genetic types. And so this woman was biracial and it's a woman. So it's different than the other studies that have been done so far, which is kind of a big deal. It's also thought that you know HIV develops that HIV develops differently in women, so it's kind of interesting to see that this new this new experiment worked essentially, right? So they transplanted the the um, umbilical cord blood to treat the cancer, and essentially the same thing happened that happened with the bone marrow transplants, and her body has rejected the HIV. This is a bit more applicable too because. Um, with the bone marrow, both the transplant transplant patients had grafting uh, was it graft rejection?
0: Like when you were like rejecting the dona- the yes. donated part? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because again, the bigger you know, the bigger the donation, the, the more likely it is to be rejected. Yeah. And so you have to be more careful at how you match it with with bone marrow. Where with you know the umbilical cord, I mean you know blood transfusions happen daily.
0: It's just like same blood type, uh-huh, good to go. Uh
1: huh. So there's a lot. There's a lot more um, possibilities for for outcomes because of this research. Yeah, I think it's really great though to see that you know we're making progress here. I I didn't think I'd see this in our lifetime.
0: No, it's it's definitely uh, good to see and and to kind of keep an eye on see how it continues to kind of grow, grow from here, and hopefully it's just. The first step, you know?
1: Well, and I think for any of us in the LGBT community, like it's it's a really big deal to see HIV being taken seriously, especially after, you know, 20 years, it was not taken seriously at all. It's one of the longest lasting, you know, um, epidemics. And, you know, seeing it being treated so seriously is kind of a big deal. I mean, and because, you know, especially now, demographics with HIV is to have, you know, while, you know, there's a higher rate in certain LGBT communities, you know, there's also high rates in certain minority communities or, you know, certain age brackets. So it's one of those things that it, it needs to be, you know, it needs to be focused on. And it's kind of cool to see that, you know, a new treatment worked.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. It it's gives a great, me hope. great story. Great story to see.
1: Yeah, we need we need a win once in a while.
0: Well, shifting uh, in our show, we'll hit. It. We'll go to Don now to hit us with some Pokemon news.
2: So, if you're uh, trying to go to an upcoming event this year, we now know that you'll need to have. I think they have it. It's all on the TPCR website, but you'll want to have specific masks. You can't have uh, like your standard just like cl- uh, cloth mask.
1: Oh, do they need the um the special? What are they called? The um... I don't think it has to be
2: like an N ninety five. There's like a list of a bunch. I, I think like a surgical mask is all right, but you, like the cloth masks you buy at like Etsy, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that. Those tip, I don't think are gonna fly. You also have to show negative COVID uh, within seventy two hours of the event. And if you have your and if your most recent shot is more than like six or seven months, I can't remember which one you have to then have a booster.
1: That's really cool to see, though, that they're being this progressive and proactive.
2: Yeah, they're definitely uh, like they're definitely going pretty, pretty strict on it, which is definitely. Uh,
1: how how like have people definitely... been reacting?
2: And from obviously just general Twitter, it's pretty favorable. I think people are just excited to get events back.
1: So just for like all events or just major events?
2: for premier events which should be like regionals nationals worlds etc we haven't talked
1: about
0: it since
2: then but the the florida regional was canceled yes it is
0: we're still left with what jersey salt lake vancouver
2: i believe we have like indy well like indy might be um might be uh inter- like internats. it's never there at columbus um
1: columbus is usually columbus is always internats.
2: it's only been like that for a couple of years i
0: think
1: indy
2: is internationals this year is it it was indie for like a very long time, but um, I'm not sure anyway. But yeah, we have there, we have Jersey, we have Utah, which is like coming up,
0: yeah, March 18th, which the registration's open for Utah,
2: yes. I think there's also Madison and like Milwaukee. I thought there's a can, oh, is it Milwaukee? Yeah, there's also a Canadian, there used to be a Madison,
1: Vancouver, Vancouver. Vancouver, yeah,
2: Vancouver. That's the other one.
1: I want to go to Vancouver.
2: But yeah, I'm looking at maybe going to like New Jersey, maybe like the one in Indy.
1: But
0: I guess the the other Pokemon news bit is Aegislash got dropped into Unite.
2: Oh yeah, I have still need to play Unite. How is Aegislash? I
0: haven't gotten a chance to try Aegislash, but I don't think the world is ready for Aegislash to take
2: it over. I like it a lot as a Pokemon. I've always thought it was cool and I think it's sad that they nerfed him.
0: I'm very curious what silly outfits they're going to give Aegislash. <gasps> I
1: want to see it with a bow tie. <laughs>
2: Oh, I feel like it's it's ready for a bow tie.
1: Tuxedo Aegislash. I've always, like, really wanted them to make an Aegislash plush.
2: They don't have oh, one? Gen 5's coming up.
1: I know. But that's Gen I've 6. Uh... Is it? Yeah, and I'm, because I'm waiting for Gen 5, because Gen 5 would have Archie Ups.
2: That's right, that's and, right, And yeah.
1: Haley's really big into dinosaurs right now, so she has, like... A bunch of dinosaur Pokemon plush. They're really cute.
0: Last bit of Pokemon news because it would not be Pokemon news without me dropping something about Pokemon Go.
2: Oh, I got I got my second ever hundred percent dude the other day. I got an azurel Oh, what? that's a good one to have. A
1: what Aziril baby Sp- Meryl? Baby. Oh 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 azeril Aziril.
2: I say
0: Aziril. I always called I it Ozroll.
2: We know. We all know what we mean, though. Yeah, I do now. The,
0: the game Pokemon Go is joining in the tried and true legacy of the mainstream Pokemon games, where they take a mechanic and just give it a new name because now we have a bigger form of shadow Pokemon, uh. <laughs> like like Alpha Shadow, Alpha Shadow Lugia, and Alpha Shadow Ho Oh. Sick. So, what does the Alpha part do? uh basically sacred fire and Aeroblast blast are getting if you keep them shadow they the move itself is more powerful and if you purify them it gets like stupid powerful so yeah and then we have the johto the johto tour event at the end of february where you pick gold and silver and they just released all the if you you have to pick which team you are and uh the mons that come that spawn with if you pick silver or if you pick gold but I'm gonna pick silver because Lugia is better. Oh, I messed up. It's it's Apex Lugia, not Alpha Lugio. That's a Legends goof for me.
2: Well Legends is sick
0: too. Well, that's all the news that I had. I think that's it for you all too. So on that, well, let's uh, I'll jump into the interview, and then I'll see you all at the wrap up.
1: Oh, let's not get too squirmish
2: that was a bad joke squirmish even a pokemon i don't
0: know i think she was i think she was going for squeamish i was
1: gonna
0: go squeamish i can't even all right all right everyone well we are jumping into our interview with our very special guest this week we have matt pertone real quick matt why don't you give our listeners a little bit of a background about who you are and, and the work that you do
3: Sure. Uh, my name is Matt Bertone. I'm an entomologist at NC State University, as well as the director of the Plant Disease and Insect Clinic. Uh, and I uh, identify insects and arthropods and uh, other critters for people who either just want to know what they are or are usually uh, there's some kind of pest issue or something.
0: And, and you actually run one of my favorite or helper run one of my favorite Twitter accounts, which is the, the recluse or not, Correct.
3: Yeah, yeah, that we actually started a long time ago. I haven't been active on that account for a while, you know, work got in the way. But um, yeah, there was a it was a really great resource we were able to provide. And, and I think some people are still uh, providing those identifications.
0: It's uh, and and did you, you start you did you start that one? Or did you inherit it?
3: I, I helped start it. So uh, along with uh, Catherine Scott up in Canada, who's an arachnologist and works with uh, black widows and uh, Eleanor Spicer Rice, who is a uh, science writer here in Raleigh uh, and who graduated from our department. So we've been uh, friends for a long time. Awesome.
0: And then just, you know, you talked about helping people identify, you know, what obviously you do it beyond just the recluse or not, but you know, what's the, what's the drive, what's the purpose there? You know, what are you trying to help connect people with?
3: Most of uh, the information in science and biology is based on accurate identification. So uh, first, before you can do anything in science or or even in applied sciences, like what I do in extension to help uh, with real world issues like pest problems, is first figure out what the actual organism is, because without that, uh, you can't get any information, you can't really figure out what's going on. And so uh, I help with particularly the more difficult situations, uh, but I help all different types of clients uh, correctly identify what they've got and uh, also give some information about their biology and whatnot.
0: And then uh, one, one, one last question sort of about about you, but how did you get into entomology? You know, what what, what drew you to that field?
3: I don't know exactly, but uh, it was when I was very young, so probably about three or so years old, I was I was already interested in Always interested in zoology and biology, uh, especially, you know, dinosaurs, of course, because most kids are, but, uh, but insects and all the creepy crawlies, especially spiders and scorpions, I was just a big fan of. And uh, I think it's partly due to a similar reason I think the Pokemon community is, is engaged is that there's so much diversity of forms and behaviors and biologies that it's just there's, there's always something new to learn and, and an interesting critter just around the way.
0: What's your favorite bug?
3: That's a tough one. That's like the (laughs) that's the most difficult question to ask an entomologist, I think, Uh, although and especially for me, because I just see so many different really crazy ones. I would say my go to answer is probably a phantom crane fly. Uh, They're just very, very charismatic insects, fairly uncommon, but you can find them widespread around here Uh, and they're just they're just very pretty amazing insects. Awesome. Awesome.
0: Well, uh, we, uh, I I reached out to you because you were part of a paper that was just published about jumping the larva, correct?
3: Uh, Yeah, that's correct.
0: What's the story behind this, this research? You know, what, what were you all, what did you observe that that kind of sparked this and and what kind of drove you all into this, into this finding? And and, uh, I will get into the implications later. So, you know, what, what kind of sparked this, this research? So
3: this was, Basically, a, a surprise find. This was something that just came about from fairly routine collecting that you know did not. I did not expect to to observe this behavior. But um, long story short, there was a, a dead tree on campus that was growing some fungus on it, and there's lots of insects and other critters that are attracted to that type of situation, and so. Um, it was right outside of our building, and I wanted to collect all the, a bunch of insects from there just for specimens and for photos. And uh, when I brought them in the lab and was taking live photos of them, I, I saw the beetle larvae, this one type of beetle larva would crawl and then do this hop, basically. And, and then the rest is history. I, I told uh, Dr. Adrian Smith at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, who I collaborate with a, a good bit, uh, that this was something interesting. Maybe we should film it and, and describe the behavior. And basically it snowballed from there into a full fledged paper.
0: When you say they jumped, how, how, you know, how obviously larvae jumped, but like how, how big of a jump are we talking?
3: So the larvae are only about five millimeters long or about a quarter of an inch. Mm -hmm. Um, and they jumped on average about, um, about, A body length and a half high and two body lengths long. Uh, Some of the record jumps were about four body lengths long. Uh, So not a huge distance, but uh, definitely in relation to the body size, they they can jump further than most people.
0: Yeah, So they've got me beat if we're talking body size comparisons. Yeah. So how like mechanically, how did you uh, observe this working? You know, because obviously they're not jumping like we are.
3: No, and uh, they, don't, they don't jump like a lot of insects do. So they're, you know, if you think about a cricket or a grasshopper, they kind of just use muscles. Uh, they sometimes have a, a latching mechanism in their leg to kind of use that, uh, those muscles and that that force to um, spring the legs into action, and they kind of launch off the, off the substrate. Uh, and a lot of other insects will do this. They'll kind of use, um, push some kind of uh, appendage off the substrate, which will launch them up in the air, kind of like a spring. These beetle larvae were fairly unique among insects, uh, and uh, in that they use a latching mechanism to uh, create this uh, spring and this build-up of energy. And their latching mechanism was actually they would grab onto the ground, firmly planting them down, and then they would arch their back and kind of press their body into kind of a spring, which would load some energy. And then they would release the ground with their legs and this would cause them to fling up to, into the air.
0: When you uh, observed it, was there any sort of, are they doing this intentionally for a reason to get around faster? Or is this just kind of them just messing around with their bodies? Like what's, what's the, the, the purpose of this movement as, as you might hypothesize?
3: So we don't actually know exactly what the purpose is. We weren't able to have enough specimens to uh, experiment, say manipulate them, or do different experiments. Uh, and we we would love to learn more or have you know other researchers follow up on this. But from our uh, from our uh, observations, you could just put them out on a out in the open on some uh, on the on a tabletop or something, and they would crawl for a short distance and then kind of jump. So you wouldn't need to particularly touch, touch them or do anything uh, to them to make them jump. But they live under bark typically or kind of in hidden spots where this, their fungus that they feed on is found. And uh, so we don't think that they're actually jumping kind of in, a, in everyday life. But we do think that when they're exposed or uh, out in the open in some other way, this jumping actually is a more energy effective way to get around than to just crawl
0: okay, so it's maybe just in like a stressful situation, trying to get away faster, basically,
3: that's what it seems like uh you know they it probably helps them avoid predators or get to a new site. maybe if they're going to pupate they they disperse from that site, and uh this is an easy way to do it. It's not a very good way to do it if you want to try and get in this particular direction because they don't have a very good way of aiming, but uh but it's still better than walking, and so they're kind of just. Probably hopping around just to see where they can
0: get. And then uh, these are beetle larvae, correct? That's correct. Uh, so, are the beetles that they eventually become are they known for for jumping at all, or is this just kind of some weird little thing that that you just noticed with the larvae?
3: The, the adults don't jump at all. No, they just crawl around and they can fly. Um, there are jumping beetles, uh, uh, adult beetles that will jump, uh, even some really famous pests. They're flea beetles and things like that. Uh, but in this group, there there's one kind of strange rare group in, I think, Southeast Asia that's related that has hopping adults. But otherwise, it's uh, it's fairly unknown for the adults of these groups to jump.
0: Well, who needs to jump when you can fly, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you You talked about you know maybe someone wants to run a little bit more of this research down the road maybe you all what what are the implications of of expanding on this research you know what can we uh or or further researchers learn to gain from from working with this kind of info
3: i mean this is this is mostly basic knowledge it's it's just knowing what's out there uh and what the possibilities are uh, I don't know that it would necessarily um, be able to be say engineered into something useful for us, because honestly we do use latches very similar in a similar respect to what they do. So uh, they're not really, they don't really have any really specialized anatomy for doing this jump either. So it's not like they've evolved something that we could say, uh, harness the, the power of or something. So it's, it's mostly just kind of knowledge that this exists and that, uh, uh, why this happened evolutionarily it would be interesting to know also how common it is among close relatives because we, we did happen to find with, uh, with our collaborator in Japan who observed it in a different genus of uh, beetles, close relatives, but uh, uh, kind of distant cousins basically, that it's actually more widespread in this group of beetles. So um, we're not sure exactly what the implications are, but you know the first step is always describing it.
0: Well, you can't ask, you can't answer a question you don't know to ask.
3: Exactly, exactly. And maybe this will inspire people.
0: The photos of it are are pretty, uh, are pretty cool, I think. Just kind of seeing the thing kind of spring forward into the air. Thanks. Uh, But um, I, I, so uh, before we jump into the the, the Pokemon section of it, um, I kind of want to give our listeners a little bit of, we'll say like equal grounding to kind of stand on going into it. Uh, So for the episode, we're going to be talking about larva. And so I I would love it if you could just kind of help give sort of a base understanding of what we're talking about when we say larva, pupa, pupa pupating, like that. There's, you know, a good ground level for people to stand on.
3: Insects go through developmental stages. And the most of the what we would call, quote, primitive insects, the things, even things like you would know commonly, like dragonflies, Although they're not a great example because they go through a much a little bit more uh, change in their development, but things like uh, grasshoppers and praying mantises, basically, they develop where the young look fairly similar to the adults. They just don't have wings and sexual organs, things like that. Um, so you can kind of recognize them. Larvae are a special stage in a whole group of insects that's been become very successful, probably mostly because of the larval stage. And so what happens is in these insects, uh, they lay an egg or some even give birth to a larva. The larva is developmentally very, very different from the adult. Um, And, what they then have to do is go through a transformation stage, the pupa, which is a resting, typically resting, uh, non-feeding stage that kind of needs to be protected oftentimes uh, so that it can de- sit and develop into the adult, which then emerges. So... um so larvae are vastly different than uh than the adults so you, the classic example is caterpillars and butterflies so caterpillar looks nothing like a butterfly but it it is a butterfly just the juvenile one Yeah So um and actually uh, the most insects the majority of insects that we know of have a larval stage because the larval stage has helped them become successful and we think that the main reason that is is because the larvae can uh, inhabit a different situation and feed on different things than the adult so that they can take advantage of resources that when they develop, they only have to kind of emerge, fly around and mate. And some adult insects don't even have mouth parts or even a digestive system because they've fed all they can when they're a larva. And once they're an adult, they're just kind of flying around, mating and dying.
0: Obviously, this is different from insect to insect. Uh, but, you know, how much time do they typically spend in, in each state, like percentage of their lifetime?
3: So, it, yeah, it can definitely depend. And even within a species, it can depend on things like temperature uh, and other conditions. So uh, they can live, larvae can live for a long time. And typically the larval stage is uh, longer than the adult stage because the larvae larvae are typically the feeding and growing stage. The adults are typically the mating stage. Pupae, uh, pupation can take uh, is also very variable. So if we talk about larvae, um, some larvae uh, develop within a few days, whereas other larvae can live for years, if not decades. Um, and so, for instance, there's some wood boring beetle larvae that are known to emerge after about 50 years. Uh, and the adult definitely does not live 50 years. It lives probably a few months. So these larvae can live long, long times in some, some instances.
0: 50 years for, for a three month.
3: Exactly. Three months.
0: Go out with a bang.
3: And, uh, and yeah. And in fact, the larval stage is very important, obviously, because that's, you know, that's where, again, they're doing all the feeding. They're doing the development in order to have a healthy adult that's going to go out and, and mate. Perpetuate the species. Exactly. Now, the pupae, uh, some are will develop and, and emerge from uh, uh, as an adult within a you know week or a few days or whatever. Others, many of them overwinter as pupae. So a lot of insects will develop and then they'll uh, pupate and then in the soil. And then when the temperatures warm up again after the winter, they'll they'll emerge as an adult or they'll um, develop into the last larval instar the instar is what we call the different stages within a larva and they'll sit and wait until they're it's warm out they'll pupate very quickly and become an adult that will mate that next year but yeah it can be really drastic there's some flies for instance that the larvae will live for a couple years two or three years and the adults will live for about 45 minutes or so wow so yeah and and it's it's unfortunate that most people focus on the adults because the the larvae are are oftentimes the most important stage they're they're They can more often be pests than the adults. Um, They can also be uh, doing lots of interesting biology sometimes in that time span.
0: Well, the the pest part just comes from them just wanting to eat everything because they got to get that energy. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, So with the, and then with the the, the pupa stage, obviously everyone knows, you know, caterpillars, chrysalis, cocoons, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't think a lot of people necessarily think of, beetles or, or something like that. But, you know, what what are they looking like in that, in that stage? Is it similar to what you think of when you think of like the butterfly or a moth or, or is it a lot of variability?
3: There There is some variability among groups. Usually the major groups like uh beetles, uh, moths and butterflies and wasps have a fairly similar type of pupation. Flies are actually very variable and I can, uh, I, that's one of my main Focal groups, so that's I know more about them than probably the others. But uh the more primitive types of uh insects that undergo what and this is all complete metamorphosis, is what we call it, or holometaboly, where uh that refers to this complete life cycle of a larva, pupa, and an adult. Um and so things with complete metamorphosis, some of the more primitive groups, their lar their pupae actually look a lot like the adult and they've have developed mandibles and their legs are kind of look similar. Their their wings are usually kind of they're not de- they're they're developed as like pads and they haven't yet expanded when the adult emerges, but they look a lot like the actual insect itself. Um Things like beetles and wasps, they typically look a lot like the adult as well. They kind of have smoother features, but the they're usually pale or cream-colored with uh, legs, uh, antennae, and wings that are not glued down to the body, but are kind of uh, not very uh, hard-edged. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like they're developing in this kind of case that's conforming to their body. Um, then you have the butterflies and moths and some of the uh flies some of the more primitive flies they pupate similarly but their legs the wings and antennae are glued to the body so they look a little bit more uh streamlined and uh and you can kind of tell the outline of it you can you can definitely tell it if you look closely but otherwise it looks kind of just like a very streamlined uh thing, so you mentioned a chrysalis that's more specific to butterflies, and if you 've seen a butterfly chrysalis you can you can make out the legs and the the antennae if you look closely, but otherwise it just looks like kind of kind of smooth uh streamlined um uh uh critter mm-hmm. and then a couple of the other interesting ones are so in flies, a whole group of very successful flies, including house flies. Um, and even fruit flies that people think of, the genetic monoorganisms, they've done a really weird thing where they evolved to, the, to, to develop uh, inside the last skin of the larva. So the final larval stage, and in this group, they're maggots, mm-hmm. uh, they basically kind of contract and harden into this pill. And that's actually the skin of the larva that's hardened into this case. And inside of that is going to be the developing fly that you can kind of tell the fly features on, but otherwise it just looks like a pill unless you dissect
0: it. And and then it just kind of busts out of that skin. Exactly. And they have a very special way of doing it.
3: There's a cap at the end of this puparium. Uh, They even have a special name, the puparium for this, because it's not the actual pupa. It's just this, this larval case that it's in and they just, they actually inflate this sac in their head to pop off the end cap and they emerge, and then the sac goes back in the head and hardens. So, super weird. It's really <laughs> interesting watching them emerge. That's cool. And then finally, uh, a lot of these uh, insects spin silk around this pupa. So, that's what we would call a cocoon, of course. And so, a few groups of flies and beetles, many moths do this, but a lot of them uh, pupate uh, without this cocoon around them. Uh, this, this happens. And, and so before the larva turns into a uh, pupa, it will spin the silk, uh, case and then pupate inside of it.
0: Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And then, uh, I, the, the last question I sort of have in this little bit is what is happening inside that, that, uh, that, uh pupa inside the chrysalis of the cocoon like is like we talked about the fly sort of hard growing within that sort of hardened skin how does you know a caterpillar become a butterfly in that stage
3: yeah i'm i'm not an expert on it but what i do know is that basically within that skin the the all the internal stuff is getting kind of liquefied and rearranging so Mm -hmm. basically it's this really crazy uh evolutionary thing and physiological thing where uh, the larva is gone and what you get out of it is an adult after rearranging things and starting to grow. Uh, And you can actually even see this happening, you know, in young pupae. It just kind of looks like a, a mess. You know, there's nothing really you could tell from the inside. As they get older, you can actually see the adult inside the pupil skin. And you can tell sometimes when they're about to emerge because it looks like a fully formed adult at that time.
0: And you may not know the answer to this, but is there... Any sort of memory carryover, if that's measurable in this situation?
3: I They've done studies with this, actually, and uh, I'm pretty sure they found that there was. Okay. There are some parts of the larva that still remain afterward uh, that get transferred to the adult. Um, and of course, there's all these different hormones that are involved with all of this. Uh, same with shedding the skin. So, So insects do have hormones and things like that. But um, as far as I know, there was there were some studies done classically that showed that um, the moths could remember things from when they were caterpillars, basically.
0: Larva and and grubs and all that are very popular food sources for other animals. And, you know, why is that? Why is it purely because they're easy prey or is there something like nutritionally about them that, you know, is causing them to be targeted?
3: Yeah, so the, I think it's mostly because they're they're often they can't defend themselves. Many of them, they're kind of just a grub or something like that. Now they may be in a situation that's protecting of them, so they're in the soil or in some wood. They don't really need need many uh, defenses, but yeah, since they're building up so much fat and and they have fat and muscles and abundance and not a lot of crunchy bits, uh, they're I think they're a much loved resource for a lot of things because they are tasty. They're full of lots of nutrients.
0: Very very nutrient-dense food.
3: <laughs> exactly. And that's why a lot of the caterpillars that are exposed uh, out there, they're either uh, camouflaged, they look just like a leaf, or they, uh, like those swallowtail butterfly larvae, they, are, they mimic snakes or something, or they have spines or, or, or taste really nasty because uh, there are lots of things that want to eat them. And again, as they get more hidden, they get more uh, less distasteful because there's really not a lot kind of uh, trying to find them. So, for instance, humans do eat uh, larvae as well in many cultures. Um, uh, and one of the ones that's like a favorite, for instance, is the palm weevil. And the, 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 the larvae of these beetles, the beetles are, are big. They're over an inch long and the larvae are, are well over an inch long. And uh, they're soft and they, they're fried up and people eat them. They, they say they're really delicious. Um, so again, yeah, not a lot of, uh, they're not toxic. They're just kind of full of fat and, and some muscle and things like that.
0: I think the not crunchy bits is also a pretty big draw.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That when you, when you're mostly crunchy bits and just a little (laughs) bit of fat and muscle, like the adults, of many insects are, uh, you know, bird is, you know, they'll eat them, but they're not, they're not their favorite. I'm sure.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, well, unless you have any other, any other bits that you want to add into that sort of, you know, general topic discussion, um, I think we are good to to slide into the the next portion of the the talk
3: no, just that uh larvae are really interesting, and not as many people kind of look at them and identify them as as the adults uh you know unfortunately, the larvae are typically cryptic they're they're hidden somewhere in either messy things like dung or rotting vegetable matter or at dead animals or they're underground or or hidden on a leaf, so people just don't uh appreciate them as much as as I think they should be,
0: yeah. Great. Well, that's why where, that's where we have you on to help build that appreciation. So to start, we're going to start with one of the original bug types in the game. One of the first ones that everyone caught back in red and blue, which is Caterpie. You, you encountered it in the, uh, in the first little forest that you go through in the game. We're not going to, you know, this isn't any glass shattering moment here. This is, this is a Caterpillar. Caterpillar into Butterfly. Uh, but what I uh, wanted to, to talk to you about in relation to cater—well, first, you know, looking at it, beyond the fact that it's, you know, standing upright, you know, what are your sort of initial thoughts about it as as a caterpillar?
3: Yeah, I mean, this, uh, this is a pretty classic swallowtail butterfly larva. Um, and, uh, and that's, you can tell that that's exactly where they got the inspiration. It's the eye spots, the false eyes. The Osmotarium, they even discussed the Osmotarium, that little forked structure that looks like a kind of a snake's tongue. Oh, like the Y thing, the pink Y thing? Exactly. Yeah, they even use in this uh, in this entry, they use Osmotarium. And it's actually the bright red antenna is actually that we a misnomer uh, because the Osmotarium is actually a spe- special gland in many uh, swallowtail larvae. That does avert and does produce a really noxious smell. It's it's, it's one of my least favorite smells ever. Uh,
0: so so they actually that that is part of the, the Dex entries as it talks about it produces a foul stench. So that's that's actually pretty accurate, it sounds like.
3: It is. And uh, in the it this, the most common species that people see are called the uh, the um, parsley worms or you know, the their black swallowtail larvae. They don't they look a little bit different color. Uh, but they feed on dill and uh, parsley and those types of plants that, and they get these chemicals from them and they use this. And so I've smelled the ones on my, in my garden and they, they're pretty repulsive. Uh, even though they're really cute little things. Now there are lots of other swallowtail larvae that look more similar to this one. Um, I'm sending you a photo right now. You can see, but this is a spice bush. Uh, swallowtail caterpillars it doesn't it doesn't have the osmaterium averted so they keep this uh it's kind of like a sack a forked sack that's kept inside the front of the body and when um when an enemy comes they'll pump it full of liquid and 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 it'll emit this smell it also is orange or red so it looks like a snake tongue because the larva obviously when you see them they look a lot they're they're obviously trying to mimic some kind of snake or something like that
0: yeah and that's, and that kind of, you know, you know, the smell, that kind of appearance, the false eyes, those are all sort of defense mechanisms against prey or predators. Exactly. predators. Yeah.
3: Yep. Cause they're, they're out on leaves munching along and they, um, they're very conspicuous. Now when they're younger, actually the species I sent you, the spicebush swallowtail, uh, when they're young, they actually mimic bird droppings. So they're more modeled and they still have the osmeterium but they hopefully are hiding from predators and they don't have to use that. As they get older they get this bright green color there's much bigger eye spots they even have these accents that make them look like true eyes uh, and they're very convincing mimics and they're fairly large caterpillars too um, over an inch long so um, they can be uh, quite menacing looking I would think if you' were a predator
0: one of the one of the bits that I wanted to to clear up so in the in the, some of the deck entries it has it does talk about it building um, uh, using silk uh, it does say it becomes a cocoon Are cocoon and chrysalis interchangeable is that fair or are they just different things and this is just a a mess up
3: uh they are different things so a chrysalis is actually the pupa of the um of the butterfly and it's typically for butterflies uh and it's it's the actual outline of the insect it's not it hasn't produced anything uh outside whereas cocoons are silk are the silk kind of coatings that many moths uh, produce so silk silk that we think of, you know, the textile is is made by the silkworm moth, uh, which is uh, uh basically a domestic moth now, domesticated moth now.
0: Um well then we'll jump into the the next one. We're gonna talk about uh Wurmple next. Uh, if you want to kinda, you know, looking at the, the picture of Wurmple and what you've seen, what are your what's your your thoughts on this one?
3: I wonder it's so I was reading it a little bit. It said a small caterpillar like pokemon you know it kind of looks like a caterpillar so the interesting things about caterpillars uh is again there are caterpillars is is kind of the common name we use for the larvae of butterflies and moths mm-hmm. the, the order called lepidoptera caterpillars are typically known most most species have uh three pairs of true thoracic legs. So the thorax is the segment, the section behind the head. They'll have, these will be segmented with claws for gripping. Uh, they're found in a lot of insect larvae, but caterpillars are, are fairly uh, unique in that they also have these fleshy legs on their abdomen that are false legs. They're called pro legs. These are tipped with little hooks uh, called crochets, and they're used to also grip, Uh, on twigs and plant surfaces, things like that. Um, And so when you see a long worm-like thing with lots of legs and they're all true legs, it's probably something like a centipede or millipede, not an insect. Whereas insects, again, only ever have six true legs. And then in caterpillars, they'll have these false legs on the abdomen. So coming back to it, when I look at this one, you know, it's got all these legs. It's got, uh, I see five pairs of legs there. Uh, they're all fairly similar in form. So, you know, if you're stylizing a caterpillar, then yeah, this would look kind of like a caterpillar, but if those legs are all the same, then it wouldn't even be an insect because it's got too many pairs of true legs. Kind of.
0: Yeah. What, are, what's the point of the false legs on caterpillars?
3: It's just to grip, uh, the substrate more so that they, uh, cause they usually are elongate have this long body. And so they will, they will have these, uh, these false fleshy legs with these hooks on them to grip the, the the plant material. And the interesting thing is, there's a whole group of wasps, uh, a primitive group of wasps called sawflies, and their larvae are almost identical to caterpillars. Uh, in fact, a lot of people get them um, misidentified. Uh, so they they also have fleshy prolegs on their abdomen. They have more prolegs and they, but they lack crochets. Um, and there's a couple other characteristics used to tell them apart. But you, would, uh, uh, to the average person, they would look at both of them, and say, "Oh, they're both caterpillars." But one's going to actually grow up to be a wasp, and the other's going to grow up to, to be a butterfly or moth.
0: I gotcha. Okay. And then um, the the other factor about wormpole that kind of leaps off is on its on its hind, it's got those two kind of spike spike bits. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Now in the in the game, it talks about it. It basically uses those for two purposes. Okay. The first one is defense. Um, As much as it can defend itself from a bird. Uh, But, you know, is that something that we see in caterpillars is these sort of, you know, spikes that they can use for defense if, if needed to whatever degree of success they have with it?
3: Yeah. So caterpillars, uh, have evolved an enormous array of, of different forms from like really flat ones, the ones that live inside leaves themselves. So they'll, they'll mine leaves and they're very flattened. Their their mouth parts are kind of in front of them, uh, to ones that are exposed that have all different sorts of body, um, body developments. Uh, there are stinging caterpillars, of course, there's a, there's several famous ones that are very venomous, uh, not, couldn't kill you but could very much make you not happy when you ruin your day and uh and then there are lots of them that have these crazy appendages used for um uh warning predators or kind of think a predator thinking okay that's kind of spiny i don't really want to mess with that there are even some that kind of flail around tails paired tails like that um and uh, if you if you wanted ever, I could send you some examples of some of them. But there's some really really interesting caterpillars out there um, that have developed all these um, defenses. Some actually do rear up, though they'll they'll, uh, they'll point their rear end and their head and neck in, up in the air, kind of make this kind of rear up, and and they'll spit out uh, na- noxious liquids from their mouths to defend against predators as well. So they, the the caterpillars are not necessarily defenseless. Some even make really sharp sounds like clicking and chirping and stuff that'll freak out things that come and attack it. So uh, there's a whole variety of them out there that have these appendages. So that is, that's not actually that strange, in fact.
0: Gotcha. And then the, the, the other bit about it is it said that it uses those spikes to pry the bark off of trees to, to eat sap.
3: Yeah, see that, I don't know that that there's any caterpillars that do that. That's, uh, you know, usually these appendages are fairly fleshy, so they really wouldn't be able to get too much um, force from them. Um, I'm trying to think if there are insects that do that with appendages. Insects typically aren't that uh, strong enough to kind of be uh, chipping off bark or anything like that, Um, and especially larvae. Larvae are kind of, you know, they – they'd find another way. They'd probably be small enough to get in the little gaps of the cracks of the bark to get that stuff.
0: Gotcha. Uh, And then the, uh, the, the last question I'll have in in this group um, is about the, is about um, beautifly. So one of the ones that Warple evolves into just something I was very curious about where uh, it describes the butterfly as having an aggressive nature. Uh Are, are butterflies known to be aggressive?
3: I no, I wouldn't say so. They, uh, They, you know, butterflies are known to feed on the tears of of animals sometimes. Uh, That's about as aggressive as they get, and they're just looking for salt water. Uh, There is a blood-feeding, maybe a couple species of blood-feeding moths out there, so they actually have a really rigid uh, proboscis that can uh, pierce the skin and suck blood, Uh, but there are really butterflies. When you talk about butterflies, other than freaking out people by flying close by and and whatnot, they're not they're not aggressive at all.
0: Well, Beautifly actually has uh, some of its dex entries talk about it drinking blood, so maybe it's got some vampire moth in it.
3: Maybe, maybe.
0: <laughs> all right. So this next one I'm uh, is the one that I was telling you I was, I was adding in. So this one is called grubbin. Okay. Uh, I think this one's a little bit more related to what we were talking about too, because uh, it's more beetle like. Uh huh. Especially once it evolves up. But quick, uh, quick take initial thoughts. It, I the way I see it, you mentioned earlier in that when we were talking about that sort of white creamy color, um, and I and I see that in this design. But I'll, I'll let you kind of kind of talk about what you're seeing when you look at it.
3: Yeah, I mean, it does look like a beetle grub. Um, a little short for them. I I would say that probably the body is going to be a little bit longer. Uh, but there are plenty of uh, beetle larvae that have really strong mandibles, large mandibles. Um, this is most often in predatory ones. Um, I've, in fact, there are some very large click beetle larvae that can get a couple over two inches long that can actually you know slice open your skin if you were to grab them in the wrong way, stuff like that. so uh beetle it does look like a beetle larva. I would say. Or you know, there's some other groups of, of larvae that kind of might have a similar kinds of tusks or things like that, um, but yeah, it looks like kind of a little squat beetle larva, basically. Yeah.
0: The um, we already talked about how these these sort of fleshy bits aren't meant to be super strong, so we'll just look past the part where it talks about those mandibles snapping tree branches.
3: Ooh. <laughs> well, there there are some. I bet some large. There are probably some large larvae that could um, maybe bite a pencil or toothpick in half. Okay, but, that's,
0: that's, pretty, that's pretty good. Yeah,
3: not, I wouldn't say, um, I would, I'm not sure they would be snapping trees in half. Uh, pretty positive. But we actually, apparently the largest, one of the largest beetles in the world, this very large longhorn beetle that uh, the body length is about seven inches long. Um, they have never found the larva of one of them, apparently. And from what I've heard, uh, larvae are typically a bit bigger than adult, uh, insects. They have to, you know, they're bulkier, they kind of reduce down a little bit, even up to 20% size difference, which means that that could be about a 10 inch larva that, that might be out there somewhere.
0: Wow. Okay. I mean, that's a pretty big larva.
3: <laughs> it is. It definitely.
0: <laughs> so one of the bits that grubbins are relatively new ones. So we don't have as many like dex entries to draw from. But one of the bits it talks about is it says that it actually digs uh, digs into the ground for to build nests. Now, is that something that we see beetles doing or is that uh, sort of something they drew up for the game purposes?
3: The larvae, so larvae are typically develop where the adults lay the eggs. So they usually don't have to go too far to find their kind of where they're going to sit around and feed and whatnot. So, um, would, you know, if, if they were developing the ground, the adult to make sure that they survived better would probably have some kind of way to, uh, inject the eggs into the ground, uh, where the larvae would, would, would then, uh, develop. So, uh, for instance, white grubs are a very common, uh, group of baby, ga- they're baby scarab beetles, and uh, they can be pests sometimes of, of grasses where they feed on the roots and they live in the soil and the, the adult beetles are outside, kind of normally think of a Japanese beetle or something like that. They'll mate and then they'll go uh, burrow into the ground or just kind of uh, uh, extend their egg laying device into the ground and lay those eggs so they don't actually have to dig into the ground. If you were to lay eggs or a larvae onto the surface, you know there's a good chance that someone's going to see them first and, and eat them before they can get in the ground. Mm. Um, there are some pests like uh, peach tree bores, which is a type of, uh, of moth, that they lay eggs near the plant and then the the young larvae crawl over to the plant and bore into it. So they can actually um, chew the wood and make a borehole into it. I want
0: to get your thoughts on this last one, but it evolves into uh, Vickavolt. Okay. It's actually, they call it the Stag Beetle Pokemon.
3: That makes sense. Um,
0: yeah. One of the, the the biggest question I have for you is this line is bug electric, which is a very unique typing in the game. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts as to if there's anything, you know, is there something that you can see in the real world that would have drawn this sort of bug electric typing for it?
3: That's interesting. So is it, is it's always bug electric or? So it's pupa
0: stage is bug electric. Ah. So grubbin is bug and then bug electric, bug electric.
3: Huh. So um, let's see. Well, so yeah. So when we were talking about those larvae, looking at those larvae, um, I know that stag beetles are really popular in Asian culture, uh, rearing them and kind of wrestling them and things like that. Not the people wrestling the beetles, but you know, wrestling <laughs> beetles against beetles. Um, yeah. you know, they're really impressive mandibles in the adults. The, the larvae can get huge, the size of your hand, basically fit on your hand. Uh, and, uh, uh stag beetle larvae typically live in, uh, feed on rotting wood. Um, and we actually found one, some in, on an expedition recently, just, uh, just locally. Um, so as far as the electricity of them, I have to think of it. I don't know there are no bugs or critters or insects like that that I know that produce electricity like that uh as way as as a defense mechanism say or or in a way that they could they could use it um yeah it's i you know there may be little weak electrical fields, things like that. I'm not sure there's there's probably some things that they produce of course um but not enough to be a defense. Nothing mm-hmm. that, you know, I've never been out there afraid that I'm going to get zapped by an insect. Yeah. Uh, they have plenty of other ways to defend themselves, I think, you know, as far as stings, uh, all different ways to sting and inject venom. There are, uh, you know, they could just physically bite or, or pinch. Um, they're also, you know, producing these, these nasty smells and toxins, uh, poisons, uh, as well as trying to think of what the closest to electricity would be um there is a beetle that produces explosions out of its rear end okay Uh, the bombardier beetle it actually (laughs) has two glands that have hold separate chemicals and when they're mixed together they explode and so it does this and you can actually hear the pops when it explodes does the Um,
0: does the bug die
3: no, no, it doesn't. It's perfectly fine. It's uh, it's it uses this as a defense. Um, and uh, what they do is when something tries to grab them, they they create that explosion, which can uh, it boils and it and it can actually burn the skin. So uh, especially small things that they try and eat it are not happy about that.
0: I bet not. <laughs> well, we'll jump. I've got one more. Sure. I'll, I mean, I'll let you be the judge. I I generally don't think of this one as being so much as a. A bug it's more so just because it's in the name which is uh-huh. larvatar okay uh, it actually it, there's larvitar and then it's pupitar and then it becomes tyranitar which we have talked about is just Godzilla uh,
3: okay <laughs> but
0: uh but larvatar so one of the bits that it talks about is uh, uh we've already covered the eating aspects of it uh-huh. um you know it, it the decks in this one talks about how it eats so much soil that it adds up to a large mountain as how mm-hmm. much it needs to eat. So it's a very hungry caterpillar. But uh, larvatar is born underground.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, is that something that we... See? Are, are there any bugs that we can draw from that sort of have that uh, underground egg-laying aspects of it for, for digging up to then maybe feed on the dirt? Or do they all come up out and start feeding on leaves?
3: Uh, there are plenty of insects and relatives that live in the soil their entire life. Um, they may be... Uh, eating primarily kind of decomposing matter or plant roots or fungus. Um, then within that within the soil, there's also predators, of course, that are eating these things. So there are some there's some critters that live most of the life in the ground, sometimes coming above the ground, but not you know not too much. Uh, many of them that that prefer to be underground, even very deeply. There are you know some certain beetles that can dig uh, almost ten feet down in the ground, and their ant colonies of course lots and lots of ants that that love to live in the soil uh some of them making colonies you know uh 20 feet deep or so even even more uh same same with termites there are a lot of termites that live underground um trying to think of anything that comes to mind as far as that it's it's a really popular place for for critters to live at least part of their life um uh because you know they 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 can dwell in the dark. They have a lot of there's a lot of organic matter and a lot of other critters down there to feed on. So, yeah, I'm not sure.
0: Okay. All right. Well, looking at at Larvatar, is there any is it giving you vibes of any sort of larva that that you're familiar with, or is this more so just a, a naming convention that uh, that that it's drawing from and so and the eating.
3: Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, it doesn't look like any kind of larva that... I mean, there, I'm sure I could find an insect larva that looks kind of like this, mm-hmm. um, you know, because there's just so many out there. Uh, but nothing nothing specific about this, um, you know, even, even just looking at it, it doesn't really look like uh, necessarily it would be an underground thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ground-dwelling organisms are typically worm-like because they don't get snagged on things. They're kind of moving through... Uh, around rocks and bits of debris and obviously the soil and to them the soil is much different than it is to us of course because they are so much smaller so it'd be kind of like us kind of swimming through a ball pit and Mm -hmm. so you don't really want a lot of extra appendages so that kind of horn on the top of the head really wouldn't help i don't think much Mm -hmm. um but yeah i uh it's you know it's i'm not sure i would not have guessed it was called larvatar mm-hmm. if i had looked at it i guess it's just they were like well it likes to eat larva like to eat i guess so yeah it's interesting why they would uh you know it would be, be interesting to know how they got these names but um, i'm sure they've also run out of a lot of names i know <laughs> a lot of them
0: they can portmanteau with the best of them uh-huh. uh but uh well on, on that matt i think uh I think our, our time is sort of just about up. I, I've covered all I want, but we always like to ask our guests as a final question, what is one, in, or what is one, in this case, insect that you think should be brought into the game based on a cool feature it is, or you just think it looks awesome?
3: Ooh, um, hmm, there's so many. I mean, man, I, just the some of the specimens I was even looking at today are just so so crazy looking just really really um imaginative it sounds like somebody created them but they just you know through evolution they've they've uh they've they've gone haywire kind of but i don't know i mean it would be interesting to see if uh if my favorite the phantom crane fly would be would be one uh i'll send you a picture of it right now they are they're these fairly large, thin-legged flies, and they have black and white stripes all over their body. They're basically black and white. Mm-hmm. And the tips of their legs are uh, filled with air. And when they fly, they kind of float and flutter. And they, because of the black and white patterning, they kind of come in and out of the light. So that's why they call them phantom crane flies. Mm. So when you see one flying, they're really spe- spectacular looking. Um, they've got this really interesting head and face um and uh, if i would just suggest look up uh, look up some videos on youtube of phantom crane flies and okay. when you see them fly it's it's mesmerizing they're just really cool and um they're flies and you know most people don't like flies but these are large and charismatic and and just very beautiful things that's kind of my go-to favorite insect that you know i think people should know about and uh, but there's so many other really amazing ones out there. I could spend hours and hours talking about every insect.
0: Like, it's just kind of like floating around.
3: Yeah. Uh did you look up the, them yeah. flying at all? Yeah. 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 It's, it's super strange. And then, like I said, they come in and out of focus and, and that's their strategy really is to kind of flutter around so that you have no, you know, predator can't pinpoint it. Uh, they don't have any defenses. They're kind of, they don't, the adults really don't feed the larvae are actually really long. Um, kind of caterpillar-like creatures with a long rat tail. Mm-hmm. And they've got these little tiny pro legs with a single hook. And they live in mud uh, where there's a little bit of water over it or it's just saturated mud. And they stick this rat tail up out of there to breathe. And then head down, they're kind of feeding on the muck and the, the, the stuff that's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so they come from this weird kind of muddy, mucky beginning to this be this kind of really beautiful insect.
0: Gotcha. Well... Uh on that, Matt, thank you so much for your time. If people want to learn more about your research or maybe connect with you on social media, um, is there a handle or something that you wanna plug uh or somewhere you want to direct people towards?
3: Yeah. Um people can see my photos on Flickr. Uh if you just search Map Bertone Flickr, you're gonna find if you see a lot of insects, that's gonna be me. There aren't many of us uh map out there. Um and uh I'll send you my Twitter page so my my Twitter account uh, that I that I tweet a lot of fun photos or you know things like that uh, things I find in the lab or whatnot that might interest people.
0: I think that uh that about wraps it up uh, but I've very much enjoyed it so thank you for coming out. Maybe we'll get you back on talk about some spiders sometime
3: <laughs> sure that'd be great i I really enjoyed this it's it's fun and uh, you know that that's always been the thing about Pokemon is that you know uh, a lot of, uh, you know, the whole collecting it's, uh, you know, that's a lot like insect collecting too. You really, you're out there looking for the variety you're finding these things. Uh, usually we kill them and we just kind of, they don't, they don't go into a ball, but they, uh, they, we kill them and put them on a pin, but we do it, you know, in a way that is good for science. Uh, and, it's, and it helps, helps us understand the world better. Um, and, uh, and, and, and really be able to appreciate them even long after they're gone. So, uh, so yeah, it's I definitely suggests getting out there and looking at the, all these critters out there. And that's the great thing about insects and other arthropods is that, you know, you don't really have to go far to find them. I basically like to mention to people that, you know, the things, the animals other than humans that, that people come in contact with most of the, most of the time are either pets, squirrels, birds, or a huge amount of insects and spiders.
0: All right. Well, everyone, we will catch you all in the wrap up. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode. We have a new patron. We want to give a shout out to Benjamin. Thank you so much uh, for your contributions. And everyone uh everyone else, thank you so much for listening. And if you want to uh help support the show, you can always uh leave a review in your podcasting app of oh, choice or
1: And or you can go see us at events this year.
0: Or you can go see us at events. We'll have some uh an update on some of those events in the coming coming weeks, I guess. We'll be able to talk about app- or applica- months.
1: Uh well I stuff is sent in, so we'll see.
0: Hopefully we'll be able to see you all, uh, if you're able to travel safely to some of those conventions and if not, we'll be here as always. Uh, so we'll catch you all next time. Absolutely. Thank you all.